Do you have any enemies? Do you have any enemies? Do you pray against your enemy? The Song of Moses is not just a prayer against the enemies of Israel. It is a prayer of praise for their brutal and bloody destruction. I'm going to tell you a story. We're going to talk about Exodus too, but... uh, I feel like I'm risking a little bit telling this story. I don't want to be misunderstood. I I don't want to be a pastor who talks politics in the pulpit. But the problem is, more and more, the politicians are talking religion. And so that world is getting blurry. Here's my story. I follow the news. I'm concerned about things that I've learned since I started paying closer attention post-2020. I I stopped trusting what the mainstream was giving me, and I began to dig and look for particularly on-the-ground independent reporting. So I I don't know what's going on in Ukraine, as there's not a lot of on-the-ground independent reporting. So I don't know what's going on over there. But I've learned this thing. I've learned that while the war is going on in Ukraine, the World Health Organization has continued to try to compel all the nations of the world to sign a treaty. And what this treaty will do is it will give the World Health Organization power to both declare a pandemic and then take control, superseding governmental power in all nationalities. That is, it will make them a world government. All they have to do is decide that is for the good of the health of the world And the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are secondary if and when we sign this. Now, when I saw this on Twitter recently, I retweeted it. I retweet all sorts of stuff on Twitter. If you don't like what I'm saying right now, don't follow me on Twitter. Let me tell you. You'll be upset with me. I retweeted it, and I said this. I said, pray for it to fail. Pray for it to fail. And someone who I know is a Lutheran replied to my tweet, And they said this, that's not putting the best construction on it. Now, do you know where that's from? Who can tell me where that's from? Anybody? Small catechism, eighth commandment, explanation. What does this mean? Put the best construction on everything. Now, let me tell you something. We have managed, as the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, forget what I just said, we have managed to turn that, put the best construction on it, into the Eighth Commandment means lie. It means don't tell the truth if you know the truth and the truth is mean. Now, I'm not saying go out and badmouth everybody and slander and gossip. I'm saying we got a problem if we can't pray against our enemies without someone telling us that's not putting the best construction on it. One of the things I have learned most deeply and severely in the two years that I have thrown myself into Old Testament Proverbs and Psalms reading is that there's a whole lot of prayer against our enemies. And I wonder sometimes if the state of the current world, more importantly, the state of the current churches that we see, whether they be empty or unbelieving, has something to do with the fact that we've stopped praying against our enemies. And in this, I don't lift up the World Health Organization as my primary enemy. They're but a pawn. They're but a tool. Most people out there aren't even aware of the real enemy. An ancient, wicked, dragon, demon, who has 
full control of the princes of this age, who is the Lord of darkness, who desires all men to not come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, who desires to steal what knowledge there is of that, to bury it in the grave and pull everything with him down to the hell to which he is going. The reason I have problems with things that are happening with regard to our government, the reason I even care about the Constitution and its Bill of Rights is I do like to have the freedom to believe in Jesus. And that First Amendment that declares I have that right here, it bothers me a little bit to see organizations on a global level decide that they can take these things away if and when it's in the interest of so-called health, whatever that means to whoever. I got a problem with that. But at the same time, you know what? I, I'm not really that worried. Because as I read the Old Testament, what I find is that I have a God who does answer prayer. So far more important than what I might ever do at a voting booth, where, of course, you know you're from Chicagoland. You know they can steal the vote. Far more than ever putting my hope in a voting booth, I'm going to put my hope in the guy who's risen from the dead, ascended to all eternity, and is most concerned with keeping me in the faith. I'm going to say to him, Lord Jesus, what's going on? I don't like what I see, but I know you're in charge. I know that no matter how much the devil might huff and puff, no matter how much the princes of this age might choose folly and darkness, I know that it's all so that you will wake us who believe up, so that we'll call on you, that we'll ask you to be our God, that we'll have you be our salvation. How many times in the Old Testament does Jesus wait until the very last second to save? It's every time. How many times does he send back armies and men and say, no, no, no. If you do it, you'll think you did it. I need you to know that I did it. And then he goes and he saves what couldn't be done. One of my absolute favorite stories, the prayer of Hezekiah. Hezekiah and the people of Judah are surrounded by the armies of Assyria. It's just like Exodus, only different. They're surrounded by the armies of Assyria. And this guy called the Rabshakeh is calling out to them, your own God sent us here to destroy you. And he couldn't stop us if he wanted to. Mm, that, was, that was dumb on Rabshakeh's part. But what does Hezekiah do? Does he send for help from Egypt? Does he mount a big sortie to go out with a bunch of cavalry? No, he goes to the temple that Solomon built. And he remembers what Solomon prayed and what Solomon said, that in the day when we have lost what we thought we had because we've turned our back on our God, if we will go back to that altar, back to that temple and pray, God will answer from on high. So he does that. And what happens? That very night, an army of angels destroys the Rabshakeh's contingent of the Assyrian army. So they all go running back to the king of Assyria, who's trying to fight Egypt at the same time. He's concerned because he hears bad news from back home. So with his army half destroyed, he goes back home. And in the temple of his god, within a few months, his own sons kill him. And Assyria, the great empire of the of old world, a thousand-year empire, it collapses overnight. Collapses overnight. Babylon rises. Why? Because Hezekiah prayed. So I ask you again, do you have enemies? You don't have to agree with me about what I think about the World Health Organization. You don't have to agree at all. That's just, that's just my opinion. But if you have enemies, you have to agree that as a Christian you have a God and praying against them is your duty. It's your duty. 
Exodus chapter 15 shows us this in ways that challenge us. I spent a lot of time in the last sermon on the story of Exodus. I'm not going to do that today. Right now, with you, what I want to do is go through verse by verse as much of this song, as much of this prayer as we can. So if you've got your Bible with you, and you can find the book of Exodus, good on you. If you can't find the book of Exodus, it's the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most of us who went through old school confirmation could remember that far. Yeah. After that, it gets a little wiggly sometimes. But Genesis, Exodus, it's number two. If you got a pew Bible, we're looking at page 57 in your pew Bible. So that'll help you get there as well. What has happened? I mean, you should know most of this story by now. The people of Israel, those descended from Abraham, who have the promise given to Adam that God will restore life and eternity to mankind through their bloodline have been sent down to Egypt because of the famine in the land through that marvelous story of Joseph. Yeah, But while in Egypt, they've grown so big and so strong that they have become enslaved by a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. There are like three dynasty changes in this 400-year period. So they're slaves. They're supposed to make bricks. That's all that they're supposed to do. And it's worse than that, though. They're not just a lower-class common people who aren't cared for by the elite, who the elite think it's their job to kind of just shove them over there like cattle and treat them like whatever. But more than that, when they grow too strong, the elite feel free to go in and kill their sons. So don't miss that the enemies in this story are enemies who come into homes, take babies out of mother's arms, and throw them into the river. One of those babies... His mother puts him in the river like she's supposed to. She just puts a basket with him. So he floats down to Pharaoh's house, right? You know, this is Moses. Moses has to flee. He ends up living a completely different life in the desert. Ends up talking to a burning bush. Kind of strange. But that burning bush is the angel of Jesus there to tell him, go back to Egypt, bring my people out. But Pharaoh won't listen. Okay, there's all that there, prophecy. We know it's coming. But get this. When Moses goes back, First, he just says this. He says, my people need to go out to the desert to worship, and then we'll come back. That's the first option Pharaoh gets. Just let us go worship. Pharaoh says no. And you have then a a battle of gods that takes place. Can your God make a staff into a snake? Yes, our gods can make a staff into a snake. Can your God turn a river into blood? Well, not a river, but we can turn this water into blood since all the other water's been turned to blood already by your God. Yeah, back and forth they go until eventually, can your God make gnats come out of the ground? No, our God can't do that. Uh, Pharaoh, are you listening? Uh, This is maybe not so good. I will not turn my back, Pharaoh says. And on and on it goes until that final dark plague, that 10th plague. Can your God control death? And send the angel through the land to kill only who he wants. Every firstborn male in every home, human and animal. Unless, unless, and here's actually page back from chapter 15 to chapter 12, page 55 in your book. It says there, the institution of the Passover. Do you see that heading? I'm going to read that. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is verse 43, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. 
You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be circumcised, excuse me, he shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall one law, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, and on that very day the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Okay, again, so what is that? That is that at sundown they would take this lamb. Every family needed its own lamb. They would slaughter it at sundown and they would go inside and they would cook that lamb and they would eat it entirely. Any that remained of the morning, they would have to burn. They would eat it entirely. But the blood of the lamb they would capture and they would put it on the doorposts of their house. And when that angel of death that God had foretold and then sent through the land as the 10th plague came through, he would see that blood, that suffering blood, And he would pass over that house that he would spare. He would redeem. He would buy back the firstborn son from death. And then the people were to keep this meal year by year, the rest of their lives as a sign, as a remembrance of what God had done long ago. But more than that, as you see from how it talks about bringing foreigners into your midst as a sign for those who come, that God is their savior overall. Yes. Now again, All the Old Testament's ultimately pointing to Christ. So what is this Passover meal really about? Where did our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed get the cup that he took to bless? But from the Passover meal. And so as the blood of the lamb marks the door of the house, so the blood of Jesus Christ in the New Testament Passover, the Lord's Supper, marks your body, the true temple. Okay, I went on a tangent there. I'm going to try to bring us back to the story. So... Egypt, they're in Egypt, there's the battle of gods going on, and we're at the final one. Can your God control death? Can he decide who he wants to kill, when he wants to kill them, and can he even stop it, put his own hand out and block his own attack? And yes, he can, our God can. So while the darkness covered part of the land and the frogs were over there, the Israelites are eating their meal and sleeping in, maybe fear, I don't know. But the next morning is finally too much for Pharaoh, and he says, go, go out. Leave. Be gone for good. Here, take our gold, everybody says. Take our silver. We can't stand you people anyway, you stinky sheep herders. And off they go. Off they go. But it isn't long before Pharaoh changes his mind. And again, you must see Pharaoh in this story as the devil. He's a man. He's a real man in history. But he is a symbol. He's an actor on behalf of the devil. He is deceived. He is twisted. He is arrogant. He is proud. And all he wants to do is bring down with him anybody that he can. And so he mounts his army to go out with the people of Israel and capture them and bring them back to keep them at all costs, regardless if he's got to lose his own son to do it, so be it. You see the darkness in his heart there. So we get to this point then where they're sitting at the Red Sea, not the Sea of Reeds. Don't let any liberal tell you that. That's a little tiny puddle. They're at the Red Sea. It's, it's a great lake and then some. They're standing at the shore of the Red Sea. This whole group of people, women and children and all their cattle, all their stuff weighted down with the treasures that they're carrying. And here comes a vast army in chariots with spears and bows and arrows, and they're ready to destroy them. 
And here's where things get really nuts. I mean, do you believe this? This is history. There comes a pillar of fire out of the sky and it puts itself between Pharaoh and his army and the people of Israel. And he says to Moses, who had that stick that had become a snake that ate the other snake sticks and then became a stick again. He says, lift that rod up into the sky. So he does. He lifts the rod up into the sky and boom, the great lake splits in half. All night long, the wind of God's face, it says in the song, blows and water begins to pile up on either side. So there's walls of water on either side and the ground itself has become dry. You tell me, people who can't believe that the body and blood of Jesus is in the Lord's Supper, but they believe that. I think they're nuts. I mean, the, the, the water splitting is more hard to believe than that the risen body of Jesus could be where he wants it to be. That's way easier. Anyhow, giant wall on either side. The people of Israel are like, well, what do we do? Moses, go through with your people. Go. I mean, would you want to? Watching that thing? You know, like, this is a little weird here, but they all go through. They get to the other side. God says, uh, keep, keep the, uh, the staff in the air, and he removes the pillar of fire, which will, of course, go with them through their journeys on the other side of the, of the Red Sea. But he removes the pillar of fire so that Pharaoh is able to see what's going on, and he sees these walls of water up in the air. I mean, again, think about this. He sees a God at work, and what does he say? Go, go. That's cr- crazy. He's lost his mind with his, his power. Huh? But on they go. They try to get to the other side. Of course, God lets the water get under the ground to begin with. And so their chariot wheels are getting caught. They can't quite get through. And he says to Moses, put the staff down. He puts the staff down and kaboom. All those real men with wives and kids at home. Dead. Floating in the water. Horses. Bodies. Uh, yeah. And as soon as the people of Israel see that, Moses sings this song. He sings this song of praise and triumph to the God who defeated his enemy. Now, before you think too harshly about how could one rejoice, put yourself in that situation. These were your slave masters who were throwing your sons into a river. And now God has actually killed them. Because of their refusal to believe that he's God. Whose side are you on? That is the question of the day. So Moses said to the people of Israel, they sang this song. Chapter 15, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord. Remember, the Lord is Jesus. Every time you come to that phrase, the Lord in the Old Testament, try to put the name Jesus Christ there, if not out loud in your heart. There will be a few places where it won't work and the Holy Spirit works then or the Father's fine. It certainly is the Father. They are one God, three persons, one God. But the reason that the New Testament church says Jesus is Lord is because of the insight that the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus. And so here again, I will sing to Jesus Christ. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That is, my enemy has been defeated. When and if you open up this passage of the Bible this week to read it one more time, because that would be a good thing to do, to go and review what you learned in church this week and to have your own Bible be something you're familiar with. When you read it and you see the horse and his rider thrown into the sea, I want you to think of your enemies. I want you to start with the devil. I want you to go from the devil to your own sinful condition. 
and whatever wicked thoughts, words, or deeds harbor against your conscience. And I want you to believe, blessed be Jesus, he has cast these into death and they can no longer harm you. And then I do want you to think about those wicked men, women, whatever, who you are concerned about because of what they might do to this age. And again, do I, I don't like having to live in a time when I say these things, but you do realize the current president is trying to ensure that young boys are mutilated by doctors in the name of becoming women. I mean, we have to pray against this. It's disgusting. It's cruel. The Nazis stopped people who were doing this. We're worse than the Nazis. And if you put abortion in the picture, we've killed way more than they ever did. Did I just say the Nazis are good? Please. Someone on YouTube is going to think that's what I said. No, I didn't say the Nazis are good. I said we're bad. So again, when when you come to this verse, pray against what you know is evil. Pray against it. Because Jesus Christ, verse 2, is your strength and your song, and he has become your salvation. This is your God, and you will praise him, your Father's God, and you will exalt him. You have a God. You are Hezekiah sitting in the city. It doesn't matter what army is arrayed against you. God has your ear. And what he wants is for you to know that you're his, that he's listening That like a father wanting his children to come and ask good things of him, he is ready to do that for you. And of course, he's put us into these situations so we would understand this is a veil of tears. This is no paradise. You don't want to live here forever. You don't want to prolong your life here until you're 105 and can't move and can't think and just have to watch Oprah all day long. You don't want that. No. No. He wants you to be aware that to go to the tomb in Christ is a release It is freedom, as we sang a moment ago, an empty form alone remains. Death is but a path to eternal life, and you will not stay dead. But living in Christ in heaven, you will only await the resurrection and the life of the world to come. So again, you have a God. He's on your side. He doesn't want you to hate your life. He wants you to see your life for what it really is. And then he does want to give you good things. He does want to give you a quiet and peaceful life. He does want to have you see your son's sons. That is what the most blessed generations get. But they get that by asking for it. They get that by asking for it. Now, verse 3. This is kind of the theme of the sermon here. Jesus Christ is a man of war. Jesus Christ is his name. Man of war. Is war good or bad? Hmm? Is war good or bad? And if you say either one right away, I, I, I say you aren't so wise. You got to ask, well, who is it between? Who is it between? I mean, wasn't it good that we stopped the Nazis? I think that was good. I don't think it made us good. Well, that's a political story there. But the point is, war is actually a good thing when good men defend weaker people from evil men. And the fact that our society has gotten to the point where we just want everyone to be weak should tell you there aren't many good men in charge. Because what they want to do is keep us weak so that we cannot live our own lives and rise up to defend ourselves. I mentioned babies being thrown into the lake or into the, into the river before. It is not accidental 
If you look at the history of Planned Parenthood, the organization that does the most abortions in the nation, and by the way, is ready to start with the sex chain operations too. That organization started by Plan or started by Margaret Sanger. If you go and you look at her writings, she's very, very direct about this. The black man is a weaker man, a lesser species. That's what she says, Margaret Sanger. And he needs to be kept down because for eugenics, that is the growth of good genes to over, overwhelm and become what mankind is, we have to get rid of the bad genes. And so with that, it is not accidental that the, the vast majority of abortion clinics in America are in poor black neighborhoods. It's just like Egypt. They're just keeping them down. And to any of my African-American friends that are watching, you keep voting for these people that are killing you. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. Again, I've already said the ballot box doesn't fix anything. But let's not pretend that it's not how it is. Uh, that there is a war against humanity going on. The devil has always had his greatest goal to convince people to kill their own. To not have more. To not believe that humans are good. You know what the vegans are saying now? The environmentalists are saying now that humans are a virus on the planet. And by the way, I've seen the litter on Riverside. It's pretty depressing, actually, what we've done to Riverside over there. But that doesn't mean that human life is not good. Humans are not a virus on the planet. Humans are the pinnacle of all creation. The problem is we've told a generation and a half, there is no God, you're a bunch of monkeys. And now we're telling them, you're not a man or a woman, you're just whatever you want to be, go have whatever. And it's no wonder they act that way when they're being programmed by this, scrolling all these images and whatnot left and right. You don't think that's being controlled? It's always a free app. It's a free, no, it's not free. You're paying for it. You just don't know how. And many times with your soul. So again, the Lord is a man of war. Jesus Christ is a man of war. He wants to rise up against this. Catch the pun. He is risen. He has risen up against this. He raises you up to no longer be deceived by this. This makes you, man and woman, a man of war. Now, what do I mean by that? Do I mean we should lift up arms, go get your Second Amendment rights going, let's go shoot up something? No, I don't mean that at all. I'm not opposed to Second Amendment rights either, but this sermon is not about it one way or the other. This sermon is about the sword of the living God, which is the Word of God, the Holy Spirit's book, which I have been at pains this year to try to convince you to open, to open and to own, because in it you will find your life, you will find your strength, and you will find your weapon for war. The war is one against your mind. That's what they want to do. They want to twist your mind. They want to program you and the weapon you have for fighting back is these holy scriptures does that mean you have to know the whole thing cover to cover ah make it a life goal maybe but again let's let's find in chapter 15 of exodus something we can sing jesus christ is a man of war that means he's on your side god is on your side in this fight jesus christ is his name pharaoh's chariots and his host he is cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Yes? Again, this happened. We, I just told the story about it happening in Exodus. Have I made enough clarity with regard to this being about Jesus? That the Pharaoh is the devil, symbolically, typolog typologically. That he is the first echo of this that will come many times throughout the Old Testament. Goliath is another great example of this. 
where you have an unbeatable enemy who has the people of Israel up against the wall. In fact, it has David right in front of him. David, to whom the same promise has been given. Jesus is going to come from your loins, David. And there he is up against an unbeatable enemy. And what does he have? A sling and five stones. Does he trust in that? No. Does he trust in the fact that he's killed a lion and a bear as a shepherd? No. What does he say? He says, I come at you in the name of Jesus Christ, and so I will cut off your head. And you need to see that when that boy lifts up that great sword and cuts off the giant's head, this is Jesus on the cross being nailed for the sins of the world into the devil's face. So that the head of the serpent is crushed once and for all. All these stories tell of that. And so sinking down into the flood, that stone, that's your sin. That's your failures. That's your shame. It's your death. Sinking down into the depths where you will not stay. And I probably need to say this. Whenever you see something like water killing stuff, and then the believers coming through the water alive, like the flood or like the Red Sea, you have to know that this has happened to you too. You have not seen two walls of water on either side. You have not seen a worldwide flood, but you have been baptized. That was real water. And that was real word of God. And it really did say, I wash you. You are mine now. I call you by name. I kill you. I raise you. I regenerate you. All that really happened to you. And although it's not the same as watching two giant walls of water, it's there to be believed. The New Testament miracle was not seen, but believing. Yeah, again, the supper becomes the fulfillment of that as well. All right, uh, going forward again, verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Again, do you pray against your enemies? You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Now, I, I really want to keep going line by line and saying things. I also don't really want to preach a full 45 minutes this morning. So I'm just going to keep reading here for a moment. We're going to get all the way through it, okay? So verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. That's the devil prowling around you like a roaring lion looking to devour you. That's what he wants to pursue and destroy. Yet, verse 10, you, Jesus, blew with your wind. Hear the Holy Spirit in that. The sea covered them. Hear baptism in that. Thank, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, who is like you, O Jesus, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. So what they're singing about there is that others, when they hear about what has happened, are actually going to be bothered by it. Those who don't believe in God being who God is. So for us, those who don't believe in Jesus, they don't like it when we talk about it. And that's not a reason for us to stop. It's a reason for us to rejoice. They're actually afraid of us. Have you, have you seen that? It's really something. 
Christians are the thing that the, the far left are afraid of right now. They're really concerned about this thing called Christian nationalism. I don't even know what that is. It's, it's like this idea that the Christians would think this is their country or something. Right? They're afraid of us as if we're some sort of wretched group that goes around marauding and doing wicked things. All we want is to live peaceable and quiet lives with our families and to pass on our faith to our kids and our kids' kids, right? So again, but recognize they're bothered by it. Why? There's a reason. Paul says this, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, it's because we're the stench of death to them. When you're not afraid of your death, when you are confident in the face of your sin because you have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, Somebody who has justified their life in this age by whatever, money, mammon, what have you, sex, drugs, rock and roll, what have you. Someone who's happy now and sees that you're okay letting go of it, you smell like death to them. One of my friends used to call it the stench of God. You have the stench of God on you and they're kind of like, what is with that person? They're so weird. And again, rejoice in this. Be ready for it. Be ready to be. Do you remember what we do every year? We remember that we are set apart. That means distinct. That means different. That means not like others. So he says again, verse 15, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Jesus, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Oh, here's the gospel, right? The place, O Jesus Christ, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established. Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. Verse 19 reminds us of the story. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Jesus Christ brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Now, I I hope I've, I've woven a good yarn for you today. But I hope something more than that. I hope I've begun to pull together for you how all these Old Testament stories are about the fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I hope I have convinced you that it is not only your right, but your duty to believe that he is your God, just as he was their God. And that you don't only have the freedom, but the duty to pray to him for what you know is good. And that includes that your enemies will be stopped in their tracks and if need be destroyed by him. And I hope also that I've convinced you that your baptism into him is that promise made good against the enemy that's within you, which is your sinful flesh, and against the devil who again prowls around trying to destroy you. And now finally, I want to convince you that eating this new Passover meal, this New Testament in his blood, this is the place most of all to bring these prayers. Prayers of praise, prayers of concern, prayers of anxiety, prayers of repentance, and prayers that your enemy would be cast down. As you take and you eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ, as you stare upon his wounds, I want you to see the devil's head smashed beneath his feet. And I want to see all your fears of this present age piercing his hands. And I want you to know that he is risen. (laughs) Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus.